This is WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live online at www.wvew.org. And you are listening now to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. We're on the air every Sunday at noon, and we're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. And you can also catch us on iTunes podcast and SoundCloud. So um, the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and not the radio station. This is Nina Kunimoto. Um, I'm a local educator and a graduate student. And this is Anna Milani, and I'm also a local educator and I am a doctoral student at UMass Amherst studying public health. Today, Nina and I are doing a show that is really a response to the ongoing conversation around heroin use and opioid-related overdoses in Wyndham County. Overall, as many people may know, in the U.S., the rise in opioid-related deaths has risen. So in 2018, we saw about 70,000 deaths that were opioid-related. And this has also been linked to the dip in lifetime expect, uh, expectancy rates in the U.S., which some are calling deaths of despair uh, related to alcohol, drugs, suicide, poverty. So we decided to do a show around this. We've done a couple shows in the past around substance use, and today we're really going to be focusing on supervised injection sites, or what are also known as supervised consumption sites. Hmm. We're also going to talk about what harm reduction means and talking about the social determinants of addiction. We are going to be airing an interview that we did a couple of weeks ago with Carrie Stevenson. She is the public affairs leader at Vancouver Coastal Health in Canada. Vancouver uh, Coastal Health provides a number of different health services one of which is Insight, a supervised consumption site that opened in 2003. It's also known as the first legal supervised consumption site in North America. And we are going to start with a song. Nina's going to introduce that song. Yep. So we're starting um, off with Billie Holiday. And the reason why we chose Billie Holiday to start us off is because she was um, addicted to heroin um, and she spent time in prison for heroin possession and when she was 44 she died of a drug overdose and we chose the song gloomy sunday
are listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Today we are talking about supervised consumption um, sites and um, we have an interview with um, Carrie Stephenson and we'll be talking about the different facts around supervised consumption sites. So in June, Anna and I both attended the opiate forum that was held at the um, downtown Brattleboro fire station. And we decided to do this show because we heard a lot of misinformation about the supervised consumption sites. And we also um, were wondering about the overwhelming framing of the conversation around criminalization and around the war on drugs. So according to Vermont Digger, Um, the July 21st article, there were five reported overdose deaths in Wyndham County this year. Wyndham County is 7% of um, the state's population, yet report nearly a quarter of opioid-related overdoses. And it's very important to note that people who are dying from opioid-related issues is that the opioids are being mixed with other substances, such as alcohol, um, Xanthax, fentanyl. And, and a lot of the other substances are being increasingly laced with fentanyl. And we will talk a little bit more about that later in the show. Um, so recently, Vermont reported that over 80% of heroin tested had fentanyl in it. And it can be um, 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin and much cheaper. So we'll be talking a little bit more informatively about that um, towards the end of the show. But also around the world, places like Vancouver and Europe and in Australia, these places have had for quite a long time now, since the 1980s, they've been treating this issue of opiates as a health issue. All those places, Vancouver and and a lot of places in Europe and in Australia, they have supervised consumption sites because they use a harm reduction model. They're looking at this issue through the health framework. Yeah, and I think it's just, we just want to point that out because, again, there is so much misinformation about supervised injection sites, I think particularly in the U.S., and that these are nothing new. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Vancouver one that we talked to, that opened in 2003, but the, the earliest one was back in the 1980s, and there has been extensive research on these supervised uh, consumption sites. So we're going to go to uh, the first part of the interview that we did with Carrie Stevenson, who again is the public affairs leader uh, up in Vancouver, and we'll come back after the first segment. I live in Brattleboro, Vermont, which is in Wyndham County, and Wyndham County is seeing the highest rates of opioid overdose-related deaths in all of Vermont, and so there's, it's really a a community struggling to find the best remedies, and this past June, there was a community forum to talk about the issue, and as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of different states and cities pushing for harm reduction, and uh, I know visiting, actually, Insight to look at supervised injection sites, so I was wondering if you could just start with talking about Insight as being the home of the only supervised injection site in North America, and tell us what a supervised injection site is. Well, Insight is the first legal supervised injection site in North America. It is not the only supervised injection site. We actually have uh, three in uh, our area. But um, a supervised injection site or supervised drug consumption site, which some are calling um, them consumption sites now because it allows for other forms other than just injecting, Basically, it is is a facility that has booths where clients inject uh, pre-obtained illicit drugs 
under the supervision of nurses and healthcare staff. Uh, there is injection equipment such as syringes, uh, cookers, filters, water uh, supplied for clients. And in that setting, if an overdose uh, does occur, the team, which uh, is usually led by a nurse, is available to intervene immediately. Uh, nurses also provide other health care services like wound care and immunizations. Now, it's probably best to kind of walk you through a typical visit to a site like InSight. So somebody will come in the front door with their substance. They will check in uh, at the front counter. They can provide their real name, a fictitious name, or even a number. It doesn't matter. Uh, they don't have to provide ID, but we do ask that they always use the same identifier so we can uh, track and collect data. Uh, then they are directed into the main room of Insight, which contains a number of booths, which uh, it, it kind of looks like a hair salon, if you can imagine that. Like each one has a mirror, and it has sides, so everyone can see what's going on. Uh, they, they get their supplies from a counter. They go to the booth. They inject their drugs. Uh, and then they would go into a secondary room, which is known as a chill room, uh, where there's coffee, tea, perhaps a snack, uh, just to kind of make sure that they're not overdosing. Uh, so we like to have them kind of chill out before they then leave. Okay, great. And how many visitors a day do you get there? Uh, we're averaging about three 50 right now. Uh, it used to be actually a bit higher, but we have uh, other services in the area. We have um, a, another supervised consumption site in the area along with six overdose prevention sites. The overdose prevention sites uh, provide the same sort of service, but they are uh, uh, operating under a different regulatory scheme in that they uh, opened under the public health emergency that was declared by our uh, provincial medical health officer in 2016 uh, as a direct result of the opioid crisis. We had had this an exchange over email, and I would love for you to explain the difference between calling it a safe injection site versus a supervised? Well, I think it sort of stops that drugs, illicit drugs are not safe. There is nothing inherently safe about injecting drugs. So it is a supervised site, a supervised injection site, a place where you can inject, dr inject drugs in a supervised setting. The drugs themselves, as we know, certainly aren't safe. Okay. The staff is all medical staff, they're nurses, is that right? We have um, at, at our at Insight, which is the sort of standalone model, uh, there is a, there's always a nurse on shift, a clinical coordinator. We uh, partner with a service provider, uh, and they provide the administrative support, uh, other employees, and the peer support. The peer support is key. So uh, peers are uh, embedded into all of our programs on the downtown east side, which is basically the epicenter of the overdose crisis in Canada, and it has it is Canada's poorest neighborhood. Um, so peers are a really important part of all the programs down there. So it's uh, those are people who have kind of uh, walked the walk, the walk, talk the talk, mm -hmm. so to speak. So they've had a history of drug use and can be there as a support mechanism to uh, the clients. Okay, great. And actually, I want to go off of that. I've been reading a bit around what they're calling drug user unions. And can you talk a little bit about the history of Insight? What I had read was that it was a community struggle and a lot of activism and drug users themselves. And could you explain what led to the creation of Insight and how it came to be? Well, in the early 1990s, injection drug use uh, reached uh, crisis levels in, in our area. There was uh, an epidemic of HIV and AIDS and hepatitis C, and a public health emergency was declared in 1997. Uh, healthcare workers recognized that re they really needed creative solutions to address the population, uh, which was complex, mental health, physical, emotional issues, and a coordinated plan was developed with the, the assistance of health authorities, 
service providers and others. Uh, the key there was to stop the spread of HIV and hepatitis C due to sharing of needles. And that's really the genesis of Insight. It, it's not, uh, it was not born out of the opioid crisis. It was born out of the need to stop the spread of HIV and hepatitis C uh, due to the sharing of needles. Um, at that time, uh, our team and other service providers kind of looked uh, globally at uh, what was working and, uh, you know, even considered models in Europe. And really that is what uh, Insight is modeled on, some of the models in Europe. But to operate, they actually needed an exemption from the uh, laws that prohibit possessing and trafficking of controlled substances so that when people come in, they can't be arrested for mm -hmm. possessing and trafficking uh, uh, illegal substances. So that was uh, uh, granted at the discretion of the Federal Minister of Health, and it opened uh, kind of as a pilot project for uh, medical and scientific purposes. So once that uh, exemption was granted, Insight opened in 2003. There were a number of challenges, court challenges, because uh, as you know, not all politicians uh, are always on the same page and you get in a new regime and they may be opposed to something that the former regime was very accepting of. And, and our government, our federal government was the same. So this uh, the insight uh, and its long-term viability uh, was threatened on a couple of occasions, but uh, that was all worked out in court and it is, is now a permanent fixture and those are no longer uh, issues. And that is an important distinction, what you were talking about, about what led to it, uh, the public health emergency around errat or stop trying to stop the spread of HIV. And that actually ties to my next question about there's so many myths or misinformation around these sites. And I think one of the big things that I often hear is, oh, well, that's just enabling illicit drug use. And I would love for you to talk about what the goals are and what kind of misinformation do you try and correct out there around what these sites are actually about or what they're trying to do that's not just about preventing overdose deaths? I don't think, to be quite honest, the discussion these days doesn't really go down that road. I mean, this is truly a harm reduction model. Mm -hmm. Addiction is uh, a health issue. It's not a, uh, not a political issue. It's a health issue. It's recognized as such. Uh, in, in April of 2016, our provincial health officer declared a, a health emergency uh, related to the overdose crisis, and that allowed for six overdose prevention sites, which are smaller versions of Insight and, as I mentioned, don't necessarily have the same regulatory regime. They don't have to get all those Health Canada exemptions. They were open because there is a health emergency. Mm -hmm. uh, so they are operating now. Uh, people, they, Some of them could be in a trailer, for example. Some of them may start in a tent. They don't have to be big, formal, fancy places. But there's just that recognition that... Um, uh, providing these services is really part of a continuum of care for people with substance use challenges. And, and they have complex, most of them have complex medical needs. So mm -hmm. the clients, if they are able to go to somewhere like Insight, they develop relationships and they build trust with the healthcare workers. And that will enable them to likely or be more likely to pursue, pursue uh, detox or withdrawal management addiction, counseling, and other uh, recovery services. Um, for, for example, for the fiscal, for our last fiscal year uh, of the clients that uh, went to Insight, roughly about 500 accessed services that are upstairs called on-site. This is an adjoining uh, detox treatment facility with an average stay of 11 days. So those, uh, uh, you know, they may have access to other services as well because they may be coming to Insight and going to other places, but we know at least 500 of them access those services at uh, on-site. And do you have any kind of picture you could give us around how many people move into sustained recovery from using these sites? It's really difficult to uh, track that because we are only one small part of the uh, 
uh, of the the, the the huge puzzle, we're divided into health authorities. So in our health authority, um, you know, we can look at the people that access Insight and where how many of them have accessed our, our detox facilities. Uh, above that center, but the clients may be accessing multiple different services on the downtown east side, uh, so it, it's really difficult to track those sorts of things. You know, for people that say we're enabling uh, drug use, we can we know that since Insight opened, we've had more than 3.6 million clients who've injected yeah. illegal drugs under supervision. So 3.6 million clients have injected since 2003 and there uh, has never been an overdose death. There have been 6,500 roughly overdose interventions. So that's people beginning to overdose and because they've had nurses and staff present, they were able to reverse those. So those those are a lot of people who are alive today thanks Mm -hmm. to uh, that supervised service. We do know from our statistics uh, provincially that most people who die of an overdose, uh, the majority will die alone. So there's no one there to administer naloxone, no one there to help them. So people who are using in a group setting, they have a far better chance of surviving an overdose if there's someone there to help them. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Um, We were just listening to an interview with Carrie Stephenson, where she was talking about the uh, supervised injection site called Insight in Vancouver in Canada. And our topic today is about um, dispelling misinformation around supervised injection sites, and also thinking about how we are framing it here, um, what we're thinking about. So I think that uh, I just want to say one thing that really stood out to me in doing that interview with Carrie mm-hmm. is something she sensed toward the end is that there have been zero overdose deaths at this uh, consumption site. And that actually goes for any consumption site worldwide. There mm. has never been an overdose death. Uh, There have been overdoses, like she said, but they have saved, she said something like 6,000 lives around it. And then I I know thinking back on the interviewer when I was editing it, the other thing that really stood out was that it is so clearly and simply a health issue to them. Right. It's a health emergency, as she says, and it's a way to mitigate what is going on and to try and give wraparound services to people. Right. And that's where I think here in the U.S. we're looking at it from an enforcement or criminalization frame, which it, which really is a continuation of the war on drugs, which is looking at it as to criminalize those who use. And so when, for example, you know, we use law enforcement, like if you look at their title, they enforce laws, even if they have innocuous like sounding title of I am helping or you know I am part of remedying the solution they still have they are part of the the criminalizing aspect and so how helpful is it really to, to look at it from that frame so when we look at the health frame it pushes people towards caring towards acting like humane humans towards other people who are um in trouble. Yeah, and also I, there was a, an article, Nina had mentioned this at the beginning of the show, there's a Vermont Digger article that came out July 21st on talking about the town split, talking about Brattleboro, on what to do and um, from compassion around mm-hmm. overdose and drug use to legalizing drugs to putting people in jail. And that is the conversation going on in town, and it's the national conversation also, so it's... Um, it's not an anomaly. This is, and also this has been going on for years. Like Nina was talking about the the war on drugs. This goes back to Nixon. Nixon talked yeah. about the public enemy number one. Mm-hmm. And I want to read a quote actually from Select Board Member Brandy Starr that was in that article that I think was helpful. And she was responding to some of the tough on crime uh, speak and rhetoric that was coming mm-hmm. after there were a couple drug raids in this town uh, that are are pretty well known for people following this. One was on Central Street, one was on Oak Street. And that there was was rhetoric of we're coming after you, we're going to, they even use rhetoric such as the southern border, which I think is super racialized language, talking about drugs coming up from Western Mass. Mm -hmm. And 
Brandy said, I'm quoting here, contrary to the sound bites that we all ingested from the commissioner, there is not on-demand service for opiate addiction. You cannot just walk into a place when you feel like you need to recover, Starr told the audience. The way that we handle this is abominable. We toss them in for a mere three weeks, and then we expect their behavior to be perfect while they come back out and sleep in a pricker bush. Right. Uh, and I thought that was a helpful comment from her. Yeah, and, and in your interview with Carrie Stephenson, you know, she said it is a, a continuum of care, not just putting them in jail and then maybe they'll go to some form of recovery, possibly. So I think that's really important as well. And I mean, also connecting it to poverty and connecting it to, there was another article about homelessness and a homeless person speaking about his own experiences with the police. And here, you know, people who are thrown into jail essentially are people who are poor, people who are homeless. And, you know, how helpful, again, is, is it to look at this if we're actually hoping to help people through the criminalization lens? The other thing that I just want to bring into this conversation is something Carrie said earlier in the interview. When I asked her about the difference between calling it a safe injection site or a supervised injection site, Mm -hmm. she talked, and actually I'm quoting here, here, she said illicit drugs are certainly not safe. Mm. And I just want to bring in another opinion and conversation around that. I talked to people at Needlepoint Sanctuary, which is um, a group here in town. We're going to talk about them later, but they're doing a lot of harm reduction and education around heroin use and substance use. And I asked the same question to them, and what they actually were talking about is that injection isn't 100% safe. So that's a difference in saying drugs are certainly not safe. So in Injection is not 100% safe, even in the hospital, I was told, because there's a risk of blood caught, vein damage, um, or site infection. And I think this is actually a really important point, making this distinction between saying in- injection is not 100% safe and drugs, because certainly uh, drug use, as, as we have seen, can lead to an overdose, it disrupts people's lives. However, there's a whole conversation of people that have studied drugs that talk about drugs in and of themselves are actually, of course, used for medicinal purposes. And when we criminalize them, we don't get enough information, and then they become unsafe. So one of the uh, good examples of this is fentanyl, uh, which, as Nina was talking about before, over 80% uh, of tested drugs are finding fentanyl, and that's a huge issue because it's, it can be 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin. Fentanyl, uh, analogs of fentanyl, which what that means is chemically tweaked versions of fentanyl, in 2018 were emergency put on Schedule 1 by the FDA. And what that means is Schedule 1, drugs are classified from Schedule 1 to Schedule 5. And Schedule 1 is that there's heroin is on uh, Schedule 1, LSD is on Schedule 1, and versions of fentanyl are right now on Schedule 1. And they say that there's no legitimate medical use Now, the problem with this is that, well, first of all, I was reading that there were no um, addiction experts on that decision-making committee, but also this hinders any research into the medicinal effects. And we know that heroin and fentanyl come from uh, opium, the poppy Mm -hmm. plant. And going back 6,000 years, this has been used for medicinal purposes. And so I think that is a really sort of nuanced conversation we have to have because these policies are criminalizing rather than helping and figuring out what we actually know about the drug and how we can keep people safe. Right. And that also addresses some of the voices in the room at at that meeting of people saying, well, what if we do actually need painkillers, right, for for patients? So if you're criminalizing it, then they can't access it. And, you know, absolutely, if you if you criminalize something, then it goes underground and becomes unsafe Yeah, in that way as well. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, we are going to go to a song break, and we're going to come back with the rest of the interview with Carrie Stevenson. Again, you're listening to Indigo Radio. This is Tracy Chapman, Fast Car. You get a fast car 
Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Um, today, we are talking about supervised injection sites and clarifying any misinformation around use and around opioids. Um, and we have been interviewing Carrie Stevenson, and um, we're going to go back to her uh, interview. And what would you say are the, the demographics of the people you serve? It's people within that immediate community where you're located? Pretty much. I mean, um, that is a very kind of a transient community, and it tends to be a magnet for uh, people from across Canada, to be quite honest, in other areas in that it is uh, there's a lot of drug use down there. There's a lot of homelessness, and people tend to 
to gravitate uh, who are like-minded uh, into that area. Um, but, uh, you know, who, who are those people? The majority are male. Uh, they're uh, 25 to 44 um, population of Indigenous uh, people on our downtown east side. So and and you know it is Canada's poorest neighborhood. So it's really uh, a sombering to drive down there and see the the very obvious poverty and uh, and addiction and people you know using drugs on the street still, which they still do. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's a really it's a sad place. Yeah. The other thing too, speaking about homelessness, that you partner and I don't know if that's the right word, but with a housing organization, right? The Portland Hotel Society. Yeah. Yeah. And what's how has has that helped partnering with a housing organization? Is there wraparound services with that? We partner with a number of organizations. Uh, we partner. We have a provincial agency called BC Housing. Uh, we have dozens of organizations that we partner with to deliver health care services. So in British Columbia right now, in our area, we have what's called modular housing. These are basically stacked containers that can be put up in a day. They are lovely units, so getting people right off the street in, into housing, they can, they can house up to, some of them are up to 60 or 70 people, and they're popping up in neighborhoods all around our, our province as a, as a result of just, you know, if you get people a home, then you can start dealing with some of those addiction issues. And we, yeah. uh, in those modular housing uh, structures, we also provide services like healthcare services. And Another question I have that came up when you were talking about the people that you serve, and you talked about a high number of uh, Indigenous people using the services, is that there's been this perception and a lot in the discourse in the U.S. that it became this white middle class population that was using. And do you feel like that is true? Or do you think that is actually an incorrect perception? We know that every... There's no one demographic that's using drugs and has been affected by the opioid crisis. I'm sure you're aware of so many of those stories and so many people who've lost their young kids. I certainly know people. uh, I have a teenage son. His friend, you know, died in a bathroom at a Starbucks uh, injecting heroin. Uh, You know, she was uh, 17 years old. So, yeah, it, it... it's far-reaching, but if you actually look at the statistics of who is dying in our area, um, the highest proportion are those people who are um, addicted to substances and uh, are struggling in many facets of their lives. And, you know, another part of that whole whole piece is that when people do seek treatment sometimes, they uh, they lose their almost their immunity to drugs in some extent, and that they're more susceptible to an overdose. And there have been those cases where you know people have struggled. They've gone, families have uh, got them into a treatment center, and then they lapse and they use drugs and they die. Yeah. You know, which is so horribly sad. But uh, it just that just goes to the you don't know what you're doing, what you're using. No one really does anymore. Just to digress a bit, but the other part that's important about Insight is that, and some of our uh, overdose prevention sites, is they have drug checking services there. So we have fentanyl test strips. We have uh, a spectrometer that can actually measure uh, and detect what's in the substances. So people will come in and they have the option to check their drugs. They can. They just need a tiny, tiny sample. They might check them before they use it, and you know they could say yes, it's positive for fentanyl. Uh, we know most of the drugs are tainted with fentanyl, so but it might show what else is in the drugs. And our, our experience is found when people know what's in there, they might use a smaller amount of the drug, or they might choose not to use it. Most people will probably use the drug. I mean, they're there to use a drug, but they, they'll be more cautious. So that service, again, is there, and that's something that you wouldn't get if you were using drugs on the street. Yeah, I think that's – thanks for that. That's really important because I was going to ask you about the rise in fentanyl and how that affected insight or in the community around you. If you saw a lot more, if you needed to – that you had a lot more people coming in, has that, has that been a challenge up there? It's certainly been a challenge here. 
Yeah, I mean, the presence of fentanyl, carfentanyl, and other highly potent opioids in the drug supply has been a huge challenge because it's ever-changing. We're constantly seeing new illicit substances. You know, just this week, uh, saw uh, they're seeing a lot of benzodiazepines in the uh, in the drug supply, so that would be in mixed in with um, fentanyl, and that has really no normal usage. It's made specifically for the street market. Uh, it causes memory loss. It causes people to black out. You're not supposed to mix those with opioids, and, and it doesn't respond to naloxone. So we're seeing these people that are just literally blacking out and, uh, you know, uh, it's difficult because they need to be uh, they need to be treated right away, and sometimes naloxone won't work. Naloxone won't work on that. It will work on the fentanyl part of it, but it won't work on the on the benzodiazepine. So it's always changing, and people don't know what they're using. These people don't know what synthetic drugs they're using. So again, checking helps, but still, that's not most people aren't uh, you know accessing that service. Yeah. What do you see in your work there? as your hope for moving forward, what else is needed to help people that are really suffering from addiction? Our medical health officers and our chief medical health officer would, are, would say that the, uh, what we need to do is move down the road of safe supply. So that's providing safe drugs to people who are using drugs. We're already doing that in controlled, smaller settings. Uh, we have a clinic called Crosstown where people access um, hydromorphone and other substances. So they don't have to be uh, taking drugs off the street. They don't have to be committing crimes to pay for their drug habit. They can focus on, they get their drugs, but they can look at moving forward. So taking the uh, toxicity out of that um, supply is is important and it is something that that is a political decision to pr- provide people with uh, safe heroin mm-hmm. safe fentanyl you know what whatever substance you're using uh, hydromorphone um, those types of things and again it is happening in a very limited setting but uh, that's that's where the solution I think probably lies uh, in the interim it's not going to you're not going to uh, solve the addiction crisis with one magic bullet. Yeah, that's true. And what's the conversation like up there around other things that need to be put in place besides something like a supervised injection site or safe supply that could help people have healthier lives? We're constantly looking at ways that we can um, enable people to live healthier lives through their addiction. We have programs, uh, multiple programs. One of them is called START, and it's for people who won't access a detox facility, won't necessarily go into uh, treatment. Uh, and that's more of the, the white-collar crowd. So these are people that are holding down jobs, that are addicted to opioids, and hiding it from their families, uh, you know, struggling, and they can have um, a nurse come to their home. They can start the process of uh, first line of, of detoxes, uh, Suboxone. So that would be an oral substitution for uh, opioids. And uh, they can be seen on a routine basis. They can be followed up. They can be prescribed with Suboxone. So they can they can really go through this process. And I've talked to people who've done it. Uh, a couple. One of them's. Uh, uh, works in the trades, and she is a healthcare worker, and um, it really uh, got them on track because they were a couple that, you know, they couldn't go into an addiction treatment facility because they didn't want to tell anyone they had an addiction, and they yeah. were, try- were trying to hold down jobs. So you have to meet people where they're at is what uh, the healthcare profession tries to do. So some of those people might be, you know, you meet them in their home, you move them forward. Some of them might be living in a in a, a rooming house, so you meet them there and you move forward. Some of them are on the street. Again, you still have to make those connections. We have outreach teams that, you know, are specifically targeted at connecting with really high-risk groups, our intensive case management teams that, you know, reach out to people that don't typically connect with healthcare. But I get making the connection is the first step. If you had any, you know, one or two pieces of advice for us here in Vermont, what would you say to us? 
Well, it's difficult to provide advice for other uh, communities because you don't know the political landscape, but Mm -hmm. certainly here, um, harm reduction is not really a political conversation. It's viewed as a health care issue. Addiction is a health care issue, and it is accepted as such. Uh, our politicians have recognized that, and everybody really needs to work together to move forward because ignoring it, hiding it, saying no to drugs, that doesn't work, and we know that. Yeah, great. That's really helpful. Well, I want to thank you. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. We were just listening to Carrie Stephenson. Um, she is the Vancouver, she's part of the Vancouver Coastal Health. Um, she is the public affairs leader. And um, she was talking to us about um, how the the supervised injection site called Insight works in Vancouver um, and what we can learn from it. Anna, any thoughts? Yeah, I think that, again, I I had said before that it's really helpful to hear from her and so clearly it's a health issue. Yeah. I think that there's parallels uh, and patterns that are important to look at. And so it is no coincidence that the Insight Consumption, Supervising Consumption site is in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Vancouver. And that for me in public health, I have been really investigating those patterns. That's what public health does. It looks at population health and really expanding our discussion to look at the social determinants of addiction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because when we think about defining addiction, how we define it will end up informing what our Mm -hmm. solutions are. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about it as a disease, as a brain disease, which is often the case, that then says we need to fix the brain, which becomes an individual solution, and I think actually quite a dangerous one. That lines up with eugenics type speak, actually, in in fixing brain, um, or people are lacking in something. So that's one of the, the, the parts I wanted to pull into this discussion. And the brain disease model has really um, helped in one way in that it's not this moral failing that isn't people's fault that actually they have a disease. But now a lot of the conversation actually questions this brain disease model. And one of the people that both Nina and I have read a lot of is Dr. Carl Hart, who has been studying addiction and substances for over 30 years. He's a a tenured professor at Columbia, and he's in both the psychiatry and psychology departments. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he says is that, and in his research, is when you're talking about all any drugs, that 80 to 90% of people that try drugs do not get addicted. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be investigated. Why Mm -hmm. is that? Mm -hmm. Is that we're looking at this 10 to 20% getting addicted, and who gets addicted? What are those overall patterns? We know that anyone can get addicted, right? Right. But the overall uh, pattern of who is dying, um, whose lives get completely destroyed or interrupted, are people who are also poor, are people that are struggling with housing, people who are struggling with employment, and we see that here in Wyndham County, and I think Carrie clearly uh, put that out there when she was talking about the demographics in Vancouver. Right, right. and one of the things that, um, and I uploaded the, the TED Talk by um, Carl Hart, Dr. Carl Hart, on um, our Facebook site for Indigo Radio, Radio. And one of the things I found interesting that he said, with all the rhetoric in in the united states of you know once we solve the addiction we solve crime and solve poverty and and dr carl hart believed that as well until he started doing the research and in reality it's the flip side that you know drug laws um actually cause poverty and it's we the focus needs to be on the social determinants and then looking at the addiction so, I mean, his research is quite interesting, I think, in terms of, you know, if you have time, please take a look at um, his talk or his book. And I think what he, what he points out, again, is that we spend so much time talking about that 10 to 20 percent. Yeah. And he really talks about how 
there's so much sensationalizing and misinformation. And as a scientist, I think that has provided him a lot of frustration. And the misinformation is damaging people's lives. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about fentanyl. Um, we talked about the medicinal uses of drugs. Is that we need to really expand that conversation to why are people suffering? What we also know is that people who become addicted and use drugs are universally, I mean, I've read this, that there's a, that these people have experienced other traumas in their lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a background in domestic violence and I have worked with so many survivors of violence that started using uh, substances where it began to interrupt their lives in order to cope with the abuse happening in their lives. And so mm -hmm. this is not disconnected from the conditions that people live in, that there is not enough jobs for people, that there's not enough housing for people. And that really, and this is what Carl Hart also speaks to, is that is it a question about addiction or is it actually a question about poverty and what creates mm -hmm. poverty, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think is, is also an important piece to think about. Absolutely. We are going to go to a quick song then we're going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit more about, I had mentioned the Needle Point Sanctuary. We're going to talk about a couple of events coming up in town and we will close out the show with those things. Nina, you want to introduce the songs? Yeah. Next song is by Mr. Ali and it is called Uncle Sam Goddamn by Brother Ali. Uh, the name of this song is Uncle Sam, damn. It's a show tune, but the show ain't been written for it yet. We gonna see if Tony Jerome and the band can maybe work it out for me. Straighten me out right quick. Nah, I like it so far, man. Yeah. Come on, let's go. Uh, welcome to the United Snakes. Land of the thief, home of the slave. Grand Imperial Guard, where the dollar is sacred and proud. Let's do the real, come on now. Smoke and mirrors, stripes and stars. Stoning for the cross in the name of God. Bloodshed, genocide, rape and fraud. Written to the pages of the law, good law. The cold continent latchkey child ran away one day and started acting foul. King of where the wild things are, daddy's proud. Cause the Roman Empire done passed it down. Imported and tortured the workforce and never healed the wounds or shook the curse off. Now the grown-up Goliath nation holding open auditions for the part of David. Can you feel? Nothing can save you. You question the rain, you get rushed in and chained up. Fist raised, but I must be insane because I can't figure single, single damn way to change. Well, welcome to the United States. Land of the thief, home of the slave. The Grand Imperial where the dollar is sacred and power is God. Welcome to the United States, land of the thief, home of the slave. The Grand Imperial Guard, where the dollar is sacred and power is God. All must bow to the fat and lazy. The f obey me and why do they hate me? Who me? Only two generations away from the world's most despicable slavery trade. Pioneered so many ways to degrade a human being that it can't be changed to this day. Legacy so ingrained in the way that we think we no longer need chains to be slaves. Lord, it's a shameful display. The overseers even got raped along the way. Cause the children can't escape from the pain And they born with the poisonous hatred in their veins Try and separate a man from his soul You only strengthen him and lose your own But shoot that if he walk near the throne Remind him that this is my home Now I'm gone Welcome to the United States Land of the thief, home of the slave The grand imperial guard Where the dollar is sacred and power is gone Welcome to the United States Land of the thief, home of the slave The grand imperial guard where the dollar is sacred Hold on, give me one right here, hold on You don't give money to the bums On the corner with a sign bleeding from their gums Talking about you don't support a crackhead What you think happens to the money from your taxes? The government's the addict With a billion dollar a week kill brown people habit And even if you ain't on the front line When master yell crunch time, you right back at it 
Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. And we um, interviewed Carrie Stephenson, if you're just joining us. Um, she is um, a public affairs leader in Vancouver, um, which, which has a lot of... Um, supervised injection sites and we're having this conversation today here in Brattleboro because we're we're thinking about what that means for us here in terms of mis- the misinformation and reframing the conversation. Yeah, and I think it's important to also think about supervised injection sites and supervised consumption sites uh, as harm reduction. This is a uh, it is a health emergency. We're trying to see what we can do. I think these are essential sites that have been working in different spots around the world. And to remember that this is not the route. So we can save people's lives and we can help give wraparound services, but we need to look at the larger conditions of people's lives that actually lead to addiction in the first place. And mm-hmm. I support supervised injection sites. I hope to see one in Brattleboro. I think Mm -hmm. that while we do that, we continue to push our own thinking and doing around what is, what's the root of it. Mm -hmm. And that I think what I, what I also read when I was doing a lot of reading around supervised injection sites is that all of them around the world. And I think there's over a hundred, I believe the number is about 120 is that they all came about through a grassroots effort. Mm -hmm. So it came around activists, it came around people who were using drugs themselves saying, we need a safe place. Uh, We need clean needles and drug use is not gonna go away right now, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I agree completely with what you're saying, Anna. And this isn't, again, like this is triage. And I like to use that word because it's an emergency. This is what needs to happen right now. But it's, again, in the same breath as we're working through this triage and helping people is that we do need to be looking at the larger social conditions and the social forces that create poverty. One of the things that we want to highlight today, and we're going to put this on our Facebook page, but I had talked to the people at Needlepoint Sanctuary, and it's a Brattleboro-based organization. They have a Facebook page that, again, I'm going to link to. They do harm reduction, overdose response training, education, and outreach. There's also really awesome articles that they post on their mm-hmm. Facebook page. That's the best way to reach them. Uh, so we'll put that information out. There's also, so people know that there is a syringe exchange in Brattleboro. It's through the AIDS Project of Southern Vermont. It's on 15 Grove Street. And the day that you can go in there is Tuesday, 10 to 2. Of course, there's a turning point uh, in, in Brattleboro. There is an event coming up on Wednesday. It's called Solutions, Where Do We Go From Here? It's a community conversation at 118 Elliott. It's hosted by 118 Elliott and the Commons. It's at 6 p.m. And it's a time to come together to talk about these issues that are going on in town, opioid-related overdoses being one of them. And, you know, you wanted to also promote... Yeah, and so, you know, as the summer comes to a close, um, towards the end of August, on August 13th, Monday, at um, the Brooks Memorial Library, um, it'll be the first day of classes for the Spark Teacher Training Institute. And we're going to start kick off um, the year with sh- a showing of in Claire's classroom. So Claire Oglesby was a teacher up in... Uh, Westminster West and just all the she brought the world into the classroom and so we'll be discussing um, what that means for us and uh, there will be food and it will start at 6 p.m. and um, just look out for that on our Facebook page and um, we'll keep mentioning that here. All right great thanks for joining us today you're listening to Indigo Radio we're going to go out with 10,000 Maniacs and we'll see you next week at noon on WBEW. Disturb me with all your kids and your worries trouble me on the day when you feel spent. Why leave your shoulders bent underneath this burden when my back is sturdy and strong? Trouble. Yeah.
there's no time.